You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everyone. Your scripture reading today is going to be from the book of James, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave a lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And that is God's word. Hi, everybody. It's been a tough week, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, but I'm so glad you're here with me today. Welcome to week two of We Were Made for This. And because of recent events in our nation, I'm skipping ahead just a bit in the book, fast forwarding into chapter two, but don't worry. We're gonna come back and look at a couple of sections that we skipped. We're gonna get to all of it. But in this series, we're gonna continue to look at in depth at what the brother of Jesus, someone named James, had to say at what the Christian life ought to look like. And to write this letter, James draws on both the full resources of the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, and on the full resources of what he saw in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of his own brother, Jesus of Nazareth. And what he shows us here shows us who we are and what we were made to become. So today, let's just ask this question. What is James showing us we were made for? Put it like this. He's going to show us we were made to live out the mission of Jesus. We were made to live out the mission of Jesus. And you can see that right here in arguably the summary statement of the book of James, chapter 2, verse 24, where James says this. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James isn't saying, just quickly, that your deeds save you. He's not disagreeing with Paul. No, that that phrase he uses, considered righteous, it literally means proved righteous, as when a person proves 
they're good at math, or a person proves they can dunk a basketball. James is saying, in other words, it's not enough to only claim you can dunk if you really can throw it down, big fella. I'm going to have to see it. Not on that eight-foot kitty hoop, but on the 10-foot big boy hoop, right? He's saying your actions need to prove what you say. And if Jesus has really saved you, if you really are a Christian, he's saying, prove it. Prove you love Jesus by what you do. Prove you believe in the mission of Jesus by participating in the mission of Jesus. So we should ask then, well, what's the mission of Jesus? What are we supposed to prove we believe in? What are we supposed to participate in to prove we have faith? Well, to answer that, first, I'm going to teach for a while. Then I'm going to preach for a while. So get ready. First of all, what are we supposed to prove we believe? Well, I think a safe place to begin would just be in the life, in the words, the teaching of Jesus himself. What was his mission? His mission is supposed to be our mission. That's what James is saying we're supposed to show we believe in. What is it? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells you what his mission was. Look at Luke 19, 10 for a moment. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And right away, in that one phrase, you can see that the mission of Jesus is perhaps way bigger than whatever we had in mind. For the sake of context, let's just look at where those words were spoken. Those words Jesus said are at the end of the story about the very famous, very short, very hated tax collector Zacchaeus and a wee little man was he, if you know the song. In this story, it's a great one. What happens at the end? Well, at the end of the story, first, there is conversion, where the tax collector Zacchaeus calls Jesus not just rabbi, but Lord. Then immediately there is financial restitution. Zacchaeus pays back what he has defrauded others of. And then there's a kind of community reweaving where Jesus goes and he meets with and he eats with the very one who had been oppressing him and his people. And Jesus looks at all of this and he says, now salvation has come to this house. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his mission. Whatever was lost, that's what he came to save and what we should participate in. So what's been lost then? Well, let's go down a level deeper. I think that's pretty important to know. I wonder where we could go to find out what's been lost, what Jesus came to seek and save. Well, the great theologian Thomas Oden gives us a clue. He says this, he defines salvation like this in his systematic theology. He says salvation is, quote, the action of God in delivering humanity. It is the divine work of rescuing fallen creatures. In the salvation of humanity, God offers the recovery of what had been lost in the fall of humanity. So he says to see what was lost, to see what Jesus came to seek and save, to see what we should participate in. He says, first, you've got to look at the fall of humanity all the way back in Genesis. So we're going to do that for a moment. We've moved from James to Jesus to Genesis, and we're going to look at what's in the foreground of James by looking at the background of Genesis. And as we do, I want to propose to you today that primarily in the Bible's account 
of the mess we are in. In the Bible's account of what you ought to be looking at when you look at the news today, you can see that four things were lost. There are four main areas of lostness, what I'll call the four losts. Four things Jesus came to seek and save. Let's ask this question. In what ways then is the world lost? I'll put these four losts in four quadrants to help you think about it for a bit. Let's look at quadrant one. We'll put it like this. First lost, the people are lost from God. In other words, there's a kind of lostness from God that people experience. Go back to Genesis. In the garden, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they disobey God, they sin. What does God say? He comes and he asks Adam, where are you? Well, it's not like God didn't know. It's not like God misplaced Adam. Not like God, you know, God didn't know where Adam had gone to after all. No, God who's omniscient knows everything, but his question reveals something. It reveals that people are now separated from him, lost in a way they weren't before. So people are lost from God. To fix this area of lostness, what are some salvation words the Bible uses? Let's look at this. What about these words? Words like saved, born again, new birth, born from above, justification, atonement, propitiation, conversion. They're getting bigger as we go. But they're great words, aren't they? Yes, you should love these words. That's the first lost. People are separated from God, lost from God. So do you think we could say that the mission of God, the mission of Jesus, is to bring salvation into the lives of people, individuals. I think we could. I think we should. But what else was lost in the fall of humanity? What about this? Let's look at quadrant two to help you think about it. What about this one? People are lost from themselves. Again, in Genesis, look at Adam's answer to God's question. When God asks Adam, where are you? What does Adam say? Adam, Adam's like a crazy person. His answer is strange all over the place. Adam says this, he says, God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. What's up with Adam here? God has never given Adam a reason to ever be afraid of him, yet Adam feels fear. Adam feels shame. Adam acts weird. Adam hides himself. What kind of a person hides from someone who loves them perfectly and unconditionally? Only a person who is lost lost from themselves. So what kind of salvation language does the Bible use to address, to fix the lostness of people from themselves? What about words like these? Great words, healing, renewing the mind, counseling, maturing, deliverance, freedom, peace, joy. Could we say that the mission of Jesus is to bring salvation to people on the inside, to see individuals walk in freedom and in wholeness. I think we could. I think we should. Those are the first two lost. What else was lost? What else did Jesus come to seek and to save? Let's look at quadrant three. What about this one? What about the, the, the fact, the idea that people are lost from each other? Look at again in Genesis. What does Adam say to God uh, about Eve? Well, when God comes to Adam and says, what happened? Adam totally throws Eve under the bus. Why'd you do it, Adam? Basically, God, it was her fault, right? The woman you gave me. I take responsibility 
for nothing. It's all on her. They're lost, separated from each other. And so if people are lost from each other, we see this. What kind of salvation language does the Bible use and give us to help us restore our relationships with one another? What about words like these? Words like forgiveness, justice, repentance, love, restitution, advocacy, shalom, peace. Could we say then that the mission of God is to bring salvation between people and people groups? I think we could. I think we should. Zacchaeus, after all, he makes things right between him and the people he has oppressed. And Jesus says, now I can see that salvation has come into this house. Zacchaeus proved he had faith. But there's a fourth lost as well in Genesis, isn't it? What else is lost? It's our relationship with creation. The fourth loss is that people are lost from creation. Again, in Genesis 3, what has God spent an extraordinary amount of time talking about? He talks about what theologians call the curse, the curse on creation. There'll be thorns in the ground, Adam, thistles in the ground, Adam. Creation is going to resist you, Adam. You won't have peace anymore with the earth, Adam. You've been lost from it, separated. So if people are lost from creation, what kind of salvation language could we use to see a restoration of this relationship? What about words like these? Stewardship, renewal, making things new, restoration. What about words like work? Yeah, calling. Look at this word, beauty. Could we say then that the mission of God is to bring salvation into the relationship between people and the earth. I think we could. I think we should. Doesn't Paul say, after all, that creation longs, it even groans for salvation to be released into the world through, through God's restoration of people? Yeah. What about the vision of the prophet Micah, the prophet Isaiah, where they, they see, they, they picture shalom between people and animals, the earth, and creation. People are lost from God, from themselves, from each other from creation. And Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save all of it. All right, you're saying, Morgan, seems fancy enough. I get it. What do I do with all of this? All right. If you'll notice, maybe you have already, depending on your background, church background, culture background, some of these are going to be more familiar to you than others. Two of these quadrants, numbers one and two, they're representative of more conservative churches and especially, though not always, white conservative churches. Why? Well, again, traditionally, European-based culture is focused almost exclusively almost pathologically, on the individual. And so churches that are more conservative love to focus on restoring an individual's relationship with God and an individual's relationship with him or herself. Think about it. What are our blessed Baptist friends and sisters known for? Uh, quadrant number one, baby, right? You must be born again. Personal conversion, personal salvation. And that's why if you grew up in a Baptist church, you got that one message every week, almost your entire life. You must be right with God. And that message is crucial. The gospel is for individuals, but it's not the only tool in our mission tool belt God's given us. What about our charismatic brothers and sisters? I'm one of those. What about our friends? Uh, say it, people like Bethel and Hillsong, love them. What are they primarily into? 
not quadrant one as much, but quadrant two. There's a lot of focus on healing, inner healing, becoming whole, becoming free. Worship as a means of connecting God to me, a focus on personal transformation. And that is crucial. We must worship. We must be healed and made whole on the inside. But those other two are considered, though they shouldn't be, more characteristic of so-called liberal churches. Look at quadrant three, for example. Do you think our brothers and sisters in black and brown churches know a thing or two about preaching about justice? I think they do. And by the way, I would hope that we would all acknowledge right now that the word justice isn't a cultural word. It isn't a liberal word. It's a Bible word. God used the word way before CNN or anybody else ever did. And what about our friends in mainline churches? Do you think they've got a good grip on the importance of creation care in the quadrant four? Yeah. Do they understand the importance, say, of beauty, of our work? I would say they do. And by the way, you should know that for most of church history, these sides were not separated. For most of church history, the church of Jesus Christ held these things together. For most of church history, up until about 100 years ago, the church of Jesus was always about these four lost. But thankfully, and by the grace of God, I believe that in the same way that the previous church generation, especially recaptured that quadrant two, made charismatic Christianity normative for the body of Christ, I believe this generation is recapturing three and four, what it means to be a people of justice and hopefully a people of creation care. But why? Because, again, the mission of Jesus is to seek and to save all that was lost. So, Let's take a deep breath now and ask, well, where do we go from here? Like, like Morgan, like, what do I do with this? Like, how do I move out into the world? Well, if only Jesus would have given us his church some kind of commission, some kind of marching order, some way of letting us know how to follow him. Oh, wait, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this. All authority, big words, right? Have been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Now, what is this called? Some of you, you may know, if you didn't before, this has traditionally been called the Great Commission. These words have been known as the Great Commission of Jesus, and they are wonderful words. They're words for us today. But there are two problems with calling those words the Great Commission. Number one, the words Great Commission don't actually appear in the Bible. That label was given them by missionary agencies in the 19th century to catalyze missionary endeavors overseas, which it did. Those words are so effective, but for the 1800 years before that, they were just the words of Jesus in Matthew. So number one, the Great Commission, those words aren't in the Bible. But number two, there isn't just one commission Jesus gave us. There are actually four, because how many gospels are there? Come on, you know, there are four. Four universally recognized accounts of the life and the words of Jesus Christ. And did you know that Jesus ends each of them with a unique commission? He does. And so what I wanna submit to you today and look out for a moment is that we need the whole Bible 
to meet the needs of the whole world right now. I want you to consider that God in his goodness has given us these. He has given us four gospels with four commissions to heal the four lost. Let's see what they are. We're going to start with Matthew's commission since we brought it up. Which quadrant do you think this one might speak to and even heal? I think this one might fit right here in quadrant two, and here's why. Matthew's commission is primarily about two things, discipleship that leads to obedience to Jesus. See, Jesus, faith in Jesus' obedience restores us to God, but our obedience to God restores us to ourselves. And when we obey God, when we're discipled, we regain what we lost through our disobedience before. In the same way that a person, when they put down the cigarettes and the donuts for breakfast, they regain their health through proper diet and exercise. See, that's Matthew's commission and it's ours as well. What about the first quadrant? Whose gospel could help us with an individual salvation? I think Luke's could. Luke 24, these are the last words of Jesus. In the gospel of Luke, he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What does Jesus say we need in order to be brought back into a relationship with God? He uses this word, the word repentance forgiveness of sins. And who needs to repent? Who needs forgiveness? He tells you, not the good people, not the bad people. He says all people. He says people from all nations need to repent for their sins against God. That's Luke's commission. And Jesus says, we should preach that. What about the third quadrant? Whose commission could help us there. It's John's. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 21 of chapter 20. Again, Jesus says here, peace be with you. Isn't that what we need to hear right now? Peace be with you. But he says, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. So Jesus says to his disciples here, as the father sent me in the same way as, for the same reason as the father sent me, I'm sending you. But what was Jesus sent to do? In the first place. Well, thankfully, once more, he told us when Jesus Christ preached his first sermon, he walks into a synagogue. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah and to announce, to reveal himself to the world. He reads and he preaches this passage. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. What's he talking about here? Well, Jesus's first sermon doesn't have a lot to do with individual personal conversion, does it? It doesn't. There's a little, you can spiritualize it, read between the lines a bit, but the plainer meaning is this. Jesus is saying, God sent me to help the poor out of poverty. God sent me to fix the criminal justice system. God sent me to liberate oppressed people groups from evil rulers and bad laws. And then what did he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to do that. At the end of his life, he turns to his disciples and says, as the father sent me, I am sending you. That's the third commission. 
for the third loss. What about quadrant four? Whose gospel commission can help us? Only got one left, of course, and it's Mark's. Look what kind of language Mark uses here. It's stunning. It says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? All creation. The Greek for this says, your translation may say, every living creature, meaning the gospel is supposed to be good news somehow. To lakes, mountains, squirrels, ecosystems, you say, well, that sounds like a liberal talking. No, I say it sounds like Jesus talking. You say, well, God gave the earth to us. Yes, he did as stewards, not ruiners. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. It's all his. And I'm pretty sure when he told us to take care of it, he didn't mean abuse it, which means legislation that does not consider the environment is just more proof of our lostness, our separation from the earth that God made. So there they are, friends, four gospels, with four commissions to heal the four lost. That's the teaching. And that is why James is so insistent that faith following Jesus is not just about souls saved. Oh, it is, but it is so much more. So with all that in mind, let me just now apply what you've heard in three ways before I give a final call and ask you to do something with me at the end. Number one, let's apply it like this. I'll put it like this. We need, I hope you'll see, the whole Bible to reach the whole world. Luke's gospel shows us we need preachers. We need evangelists. We need people to bring salvation to individuals and to nations and people groups. Matthew's gospel shows us we need disciple makers. We need teachers. We need community group leaders, discipleship group leaders to bring a kind of salvation to people and restore them to themselves by helping them learn to obey Jesus. John's gospel shows us we need, we need justice bringers, advocates for the poor, for those in prison. We need peacemakers and politicians and diplomats and civil leaders and people involved in government and law enforcement who care about putting things right. Mark's gospel shows us we need water engineers. We need chemical engineers. We need scientists to help us understand, care for our environment, to help develop vaccines and medicines. And we need to see from Mark's gospel, that we need a good theology of work that can help teachers, homemakers, business owners see they are a part of bringing a kind of salvation, flourishing order into the world through their work. We need everyone here because we have a big mission we're called to be a part of. So number one, we need the whole Bible to reach the whole world. Number two, I'll put it like this. We have to use, though, the right tool to solve the right problem. And for a few moments, I'm gonna be extremely direct. For many of us, though not all of us, but for many of us watching today who are blessedly Caucasian, white, pasty white, SBF thousand wares, folk like me, we have been almost exclusively shaped by a culture that focuses, you heard this, on the individual. And therefore, theologically speaking, it's no surprise that most often the only tool we go to in our mission tool belt is individual salvation. And even when we dip our toe over into those other commissions, it still far too often reflects an individualistic approach. As in, we ignore the power that collective systems have on the world. We say things like, for example, we should feed the hungry. Individuals should feed the hungry. And we should 
But what about systems that create food insecurity? We should address those. We say things like, for example, when it comes to the environment, it's up to individuals to act. And that's so important. Every action matters. Turn off your lights, kids. Drive your car less, folks. Uh, but, we, but we screen out the crucial nature of collective action, collective laws to keep people from sinning against God's planet. And when it comes to conversations that are happening like right now around race, many white people can only think and act as individuals, as in, I'm not an individual racist, people say. I don't hate people of color, they say. And that's so important, so good. But let me say two things to that. Number one, not hating someone is not the same as loving someone. One is passive, the other is active. Which one do you think is the way of Jesus? And second, to love other people, but more importantly, to be biblical, we should note the crucial nature of creating redeemed, right, systems and cultures. Paul wrote, didn't he, that Jesus came in defeat to dismantle every evil system and dark power structure that affects people. See, if we only use quadrant one thinking, quadrant one language, on a quadrant three problem, if we only use an individualistic approach to solve a collectivist problem, salvation doesn't come. And if you wanna know part of why I think our nation is struggling right now, it's because majority culture has been in general blind to the power of structural systems of racism. Why? Well, it's because they made them. You don't ask a fish what the water is like. He just swims in it. Let me tell you, Jesus did not come to preserve the status quo. He came to upend it. He came to make the captives, set the captives free to make things right. He came to bring freedom to people who were held down. And if there's one thing that history shows us, it's that majority cultures are rarely willing to see when that happens. It just takes humility. It takes listening to those who are crying out, asking them why they are crying out. And if protests for the lives of people, a long list of people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, among others. If those don't make sense to you, just ask, why are people crying out? James chapter two says, if we only look at our poor brothers and sisters, people struggling in need and say, good luck. If we only use quadrant one theology on a quadrant three food insecurity problem, if we only say you're on your own, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's up to you as an individual to make it. That may be how America works, but that's not how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. James says that kind of faith, that kind of thinking, he says, it's dead. It has no power to help. And actually James says, it's kind of worse than that because James says that faith that only looks but doesn't act is demonic. He says, that's what demons do. They look. They shudder, but they don't act. So if you're asking, why does this church talk about stuff like this? It isn't because we're liberal. It's not because we're woke. It's not because we're progressive, nor is it because we're conservative or old school or family value center. We just talk about these things because we're trying to be biblical. We need the right salvation tools for the right lostness problem. Tools like words, like repentance, justice, restitution. These tools bring salvation. They allow people to be restored to each other. And 
If we love Jesus like Zacchaeus did, if we love one another like I know we do, this ought to be easy for us. And number three, what this all means today is that we can't say certain things anymore. We can't say certain things anymore. Here's what I mean. I'll give you two examples. We can't say things like, oh, again, I don't think God cares about this, but he doesn't care about that. Two examples. We can't say things like, and I've heard both these things said by well-meaning Christian people. Uh, number one, people say, I don't think God cares about race. I just think he cares about the unborn. Or I've heard the reverse. God doesn't care about the unborn. He cares about the plight of those outside the womb. But both of those in light of what you've heard today, ought to be equally offensive to you. If you care about the mission of Jesus in the world, you can see Jesus cares about all of it. We ought to be able to say, black lives matter and let it stand. And we ought to be able to say, unborn lives matter and let it stand. God cares about it all. That's not being political, that's being biblical. To affirm one is not to deny the other, unless we really do deny the other. And I don't intend to here. What has Jesus come to save? All that was lost because God cares about all of it and we should do the same. To be on mission with Jesus means we hold all these things in proper tension. And let me give you a final way I think we can do that. So far, you've seen these losses like this in these quadrants. But I think a more helpful way of putting them all would be like this, as concentric circles. And here's why I put them like this. Not to diminish the importance of any of these, but to make this point. As an individual, you will never be whole and truly free and truly released into this mission until Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. We prove, yes, our faith by our deeds, but we are not saved by our deeds. We are saved by faith in, trust in what Jesus did for us. And one day, you and I, we will all stand before God as individuals and he will ask you what you did with Jesus. But I show this to say, we need to be converted as at the deepest part of us. And here's why. Only transformation by Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit can change the core of you in a way that does help you be truly free. If you go after freedom, personal freedom level two, without dealing with number one, you'll always be frustrated. You'll settle for less than who you were intended to be. And as people seeking justice and doing creation care for which we'll be held accountable, we will never do these things as well as we could, as creatively as we could if we do do not have the Holy Spirit's power. Jesus himself said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I have been anointed to bring justice. See, without the Holy Spirit's power, filter, anointing, things like justice get perverted into revenge. Things like creation care, the environment get turned into gods that are worshiped as things unto themselves. In other words, if you're here, you're listening today, and freedom, justice, the environment is the thing that really gets your heart going, really gets your pulse pounding. You should know that without being changed, converted at the center of you, without repenting for all the things you have done to increase your lostness toward God and the lostness of the world, uh, in the end, the thing you're going after will become your God and twist and devour you. But don't you see? Jesus loves you. Jesus is for you. He came to seek 
and to save you. He came to reclaim all the parts of you today. He cares about the universe, about the planet, about all the nations, about our city, and about you, your family, your children if you have them. See, so here's my call to you today to embrace all of this as your mission. Embrace this as the mission of Jesus, as the mission of the church. Care about it all. You may be called, you may be gifted in one of these areas more than another, but we can still embrace and affirm all of these parts as the mission of God. See, Jesus came to seek and save all that was lost. And James says, you prove what you believe by participating in that. It's church. Let's evangelize. Church, let's make disciples. Church, let's advocate and march. Church, let's care for God's planet. Well, the Apostle Paul, if you like, he summarizes it all like this. Final verse. He writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's where it begins. It begins at the cross. See, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So church, that's my request, my call today. My question, will you become like Paul, along with me, a servant of this gospel? That's how he phrases it. The reconciliation of all things to God. This is what James is saying we were made for. We were made for the mission of Jesus in the world. And church, I am so, so glad to be a part of that. Let me just take a moment and pray for you. And then Pastor Alvin's gonna come up with an announcement and a blessing. Let me pray for you right now in this moment. Lord, I thank you for these truths. Lord, I thank you for showing us what we were made for, something so big, so grand, so glorious. It dwarfs our ability to do these things on our own. Surely we need the Spirit of God. Surely we need to be anointed by God. Surely we need to grow and to be changed. Lord, we thank you for your heart to seek and save all that was lost. And Lord, I'm praying right now for each soul that's watching this and for the soul of our nation, for the soul, as it were, of this planet. Lord, that you would redeem us, that you would erect reconcile us, that we through repentance would come to live out and prove our faith by our deeds. I pray all these things today in the mighty matchless name of Jesus until you come again, Lord. I pray these things. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.